this is Sean Ferguson, author of Inside Out and the anthology Warmed and Bound, and you're listening to Booked, the podcast that moist pennies. It's true, we named our children after towns that we'd never been to, and it's true that the clouds just hung around like black. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week's book is Tallulah Rising by Glenn Duncan. Tallulah Rising is the sequel to The Last Werewolf, which was episode number... 38. 38. Want to give you a chance to get it out there. Um, as a correction to last week's 55, whatever you said. So... Um, you did say 55, didn't you? I said it was 66, and uh, 66 was uh, The Wolf Gift by Anne Rice. And I'm surprised no one uh, called us out on it. Must mean Malaz doesn't listen to the episodes anymore. You're right. Malaz, if you're out there, let us know. Give us a sign of life, brother. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's kick right into this with a little bit about Glenn Duncan. Glenn is a British author born in 1965. He has written nine novels and one really terrible author bio. <laughs> <laughs> his oh, his book, I, Lucifer, is being optioned for a movie with possible stars, including Daniel Craig, Jude Law, Ewan McGregor, and others. That was a very, very short bio. Did you edit that down? Uh, the only thing that actually came from his original bio was that he was a British author born in 1965. Wow. <laughs> there was like um, four paragraphs of other stuff, and I just, it, it was just like, it was more like he did this, and then the book came, and then he did this, and the book came, so I just cut it all out. Gotcha. Um, I don't even know if they're still working on I, Lucifer, because that's the exact same thing we said 60-ish episodes ago. Yeah, I don't know. So, anyway. Well, we're not talking about I, Lucifer tonight, so I'm not too worried about it. Okay. All right, so here's a little bit about the book. This is the not-anywhere-near-short uh, synopsis that we pulled off of Amazon for Tallulah Rising. Uh, this first part is from the perspective of Tallulah. When I change, I change fast. The moon drags the whatever it is up from the earth, and it goes through me with the crazy wriggling impatience. I'm twisted, torn, churned, throttled, then rushed through a blind chicane, 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 chicane into chicane. ludicrous powers. A heel settles. A last canine hurries through. A shoulder blade pops. This woman is a werewolf. This woman is Tallulah. How would you say that? Dimitriou. Dimitriou. Yep. Dimitriou. Mm -hmm. She's grieving for her werewolf lover, Jake, whose violent death has left her alone with her own sublime monstrousness. On the run, pursued by the hunters of WOCOP, a uh, world organization for the control of occult phenomenon, uh, she must find a place to give birth to Jake's child in secret. The birth under a full moon at a remote Alaska lodge leaves Tallulah ravaged, but with her infant son in her arms. Uh, she believes the worst is over until the windows crash in and she discovers that the worst has only just begun. What follows throws Tallulah into a race against time to save both herself and her child as she faces down the new psychotic leader of Wokop, a cabal of blood-drinking religious fanatics, and rumor has it the oldest living vampire. Harnessing the same audacious imagination and dark humor, the same depths of horror and sympathy, the same full-tilt narrative energy with which he crafted his acclaimed novel, The Last Werewolf, Glenn Duncan now gives us a heroine like no other, the definitive 21st century female of the species. You know what they say was. about the female of the species, right? 
No. It's more deadly than the male. Oh. Well, it's that one song from like 1996. I'm not familiar. It's called The Female of the Species <laughs> by, ah. by a band called Space. Anyway. You probably heard that at the top of the show. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, all right. This is a sequel, so let's let's get some some housekeeping out of the way. Quick gut reaction. Did you need to read the first one to appreciate and or enjoy this one? No. I agree. I think it stands on its own, which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that he, Duncan does enough um, kind of callbacks to the uh, important parts of what happened in the first one that, uh, mixed with the fact that it's just such a strong story that's so divorced from everything that happened in the first one that it, it works just fine reading it on its own. We should mention a quick spoiler alert for the last werewolf. Um, there's another werewolf, as you may have gathered from the synopsis. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if the sequel to the last werewolf just had no werewolves in it? That would be kind of funny. Not the case, though. No, not the case at all, because we have Tallulah. Mm-hmm. So um, the setup here, and then I'm going to give a huge spoiler right off the bat. So if you really don't want any spoilers, I mean, this is only 15, maybe 20 pages into the book, but I noticed it was left out of the synopsis, but we have to get this out of the way right away. Tallulah is pregnant. This uh, we knew at the end of The Last Werewolf. Um, She's about to give birth. Um, Her son is born and immediately stolen by vampires. And once the vampires are gone, Rob, do you want to do you want to do the honors? Uh, yeah, it, it's such a we, good... we have to from from the standpoint of discussing the important yeah. parts of this book. Yeah, I guess we do. But um, the it was such a nice moment, um, mm. but it's not going to be diminished by by relieving by revealing it here. The vampires grab the baby and they bolt like right away, and then she realizes after they're gone and she's by herself again, or with Cloquet, who is her uh, human familiar person. That's how I'm saying it anyway. Um, uh, she realizes that she's still in labor, meaning that there's another baby coming. Right. So she has a daughter. And the reason I wanted to get this out of the way is that so much of this story and so much of what's great about this story is her feelings about motherhood. And I think the only way to really be able to express some of the things that, that, you know, that I found to be just very compelling in this is that she has a child and some of the great things that come story wise or even, you know, quote wise came from having one child, but having lost the other. Fully agree. Duncan really throws together a very, very deep multi-layered story. Pretty much. It seems like every time he writes anything and uh, I fully agree with what Livia's just said. So uh, from page, and I'm, I'm just guessing here, but from page 30 on, you know, the, the chase is on to, to find her, her son, but she's now saddled with a daughter, and she has no clue about motherhood whatsoever. Yeah, so unlike um, in The Last Werewolf, where the, the protagonist was Jake, who, uh, uh, Jacob, Jake, wow, just going back to that whole, like, Jacob the werewolf thing. Anyway, um, the protagonist was hundreds of years old and had had tons of practice uh, with doing secrety werewolf things and, and, and stuff like that. You've got Tallulah who is, this isn't even a year. This takes place like obviously less than a year after 
you know, the other book leaves off. And so she hasn't had a lot of time to learn how to, you know, fight vampires and lead this secret life. And she doesn't have all these connections and like this hundreds of years of building up a life that the werewolf needs to have. So like she's thrown in the shit big time, right from the beginning. She gives birth, gets attacked by vampires to steal her baby, but she's still got a baby and you know, she's got to go find the baby and she's just got none of the resources except for a bunch of money that, that Jacob had when he was going through stuff in the previous book. Yeah. She's armed with that. And, um, Jake's, um, journals for anybody who remember that the last werewolf was all about the journals and that I think it was the whole book was just the journals. Wasn't it? Weren't we reading his journals? Uh, yeah, I think essentially yeah. that's how it went. If I remember correctly. Yeah. So she has access to those, but again, for anybody who remembers back there, Jake didn't, he thought there were no secrets. There was nothing to learn that it was, you know, there, there was no greater meaning to anything. So armed with her, uh, her journals and, and her love for at least the child she has. <laughs> All right. We need to talk about this. Um, Tallulah does not develop an affection for the son that's stolen from her. And it's one of the things that, um, that really drives this story in my opinion is to, to see that, you know, her own self torture about why she doesn't love this child and how she feels she owes the child to save it because it's her child, but she has no particular attachment to, to her son at all. And that's the thing. Like, I think that I, I think my, more, my impression more of the story was that she I mean, she'd never been a parent before, so the whole parental thing was new to her. But she had this, she had a very, I don't know if it was realistic, but just very stark image of herself. Like, she was very honest about the negative aspects of, of herself. And she seemed to focus more on that than she did on the positive aspects of herself. So, throughout the entire book, we're seeing her analyzing the bad things about herself and thinking about how not normal she is and she really focuses on that and so i think overall my impression was that she didn't think she was as suited to be a parent as maybe she want you know subconsciously or deep down wanted to be um or you know really maybe was but wasn't admitting it to herself she lost that kid within minutes of birth she obviously wasn't fit to be a mother <laughs> well you know I've never given Sorry. birth with with vampires around, so I can't comment on that. But yeah, no, um, I, I'm just kidding. I, I just thought that, um, you know, what I expected to to read is, oh my god, I lost my baby. I love my baby. I need my baby, and that that wasn't at all the case, which I thought made the story so much more interesting. You know, she pretty quickly develops a, a you know a, an affection and a motherly adoration for her daughter who is, you know, at her side through a good portion of this book. But like I said, some of the inner you know, monologue that she was having, there's a, there's a scene where, you know, she's talking about, it's later in the book, but she's you know, talking about if she has, if she will, would rescue her son and, and be able to get him back, how he would be a teenager. And all he would have to do is look at her with, with kind of like this, this look that, you know, that would still remind her that she abandoned him. You know, yeah. I mean, and some of that stuff was just so hard hitting and just so yeah. goddamn well written that that to me, it was one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, her entire internal struggle with motherhood and 
yeah, the contrast of having the one child, but, um, and having the other one taken from her and, and yeah, she goes through some really, really dark thoughts. Like, like even before she gives birth, I think she's kind of going through her options of like, when I give birth, you know, would killing it just be the right thing to do? And, and, and so, yeah, that whole spec, I mean, she goes through this whole spectrum of emotions about being like basically a single mother to a werewolf, like a werewolf baby. Yeah. And that's just, it really yeah, made the book. It made the whole story. Throughout the course of the book, we meet some more characters. Um, a lot of whom I think we're not going to talk about very much as to, to keep this as spoiler free as possible. Um, you know, beyond us spoiling the great second birth. <laughs> um, but uh, Cloquet, is that what we decided? Yeah, I think it's either Cloquet or Cloquette, but I'm going to go with Cloquet. It sounds cooler. Like Bouquet. That's right. Um, Cloquet, is, uh, as Rob said, is her uh, Frenchman human familiar, which means uh, he, he helps her out with, with things that she can't do because she's a werewolf. Like while she's pregnant, you know, he, he obtains um, food for her when she's a werewolf, meaning right. people for her to eat. Um, and, and his character is really interesting because he was kind of uh, uh, enamored with with a vampire in the last book, and, and that vampire and, and, and him had a had a little falling out, and um, he, he kind of attached himself to Tallulah. So he's kind of a, a background character a little bit, but kind of interesting in his own like beat down male always needs a supernatural woman to follow around kind of way. Yeah, totally. Um, like that guy a lot. Yeah, Cloquet really, yeah, he was like Alfred to Batman, I guess. is He's like, you know, he's that background character, but he's got the one or two fundamental moments where, like, you know, things couldn't have happened without him, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, and there's a, I mean, it calls back, I think, Jacqueline. Jacqueline mm-hmm. yes. was the vampire from the, the first book, and that's who he was in love with and nailing her and stuff or whatever. And uh, so she's kind of, she exists in this book, but very much in a more talked about way than actually like making much of an appearance until pretty much the end of the book. We're introduced to another central character um, named Walker who uh, woke up at the, uh, during the last werewolf kind of had this, this weird falling out where they splintered off into factions. Um, and yeah, Walker kind of is integrated a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Walker is kind of on the run from what's left of Wokop. He's kind of been uh, marked maybe inaccurately as a, you know, as a rogue agent. Um, but Walker and Tallulah cross paths and she becomes his, uh, his kind of partner in, in crime. And he has his own reason for, for seeking out the vampires, but because they're both, they both have a common goal. They become, uh, you know, teammates out of necessity. I like the Walker character, but I just don't feel like there was a lot to him. Yeah, I thought maybe he was a little underdeveloped. Like, he was, like, the coolest guy in the whole book. And, and then, yeah, some stuff happened, and, and, yeah, he just felt very underdeveloped. Like, yeah, there could have been more of Walker or more done with him. Maybe book three is going to be Walker rising. Could be. That could be. Are we going to read book three? Yeah. Yeah, I like I like Glenn Duncan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of other characters we got going on here. Um, I, there's, and I don't. I, I'm going to apologize in advance for not having decent notes this time. We'll explain why a little later. Um, he had his friend, the Russian, whose name I don't remember, Mike something. 
Oh yeah, Mike in a very very complicated Russian last name. Yes, that we're not going to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he's another um, partner in necessity with Tallulah and Walker. Yeah, and then I mean, like, there's a whole slew of other minor characters, um, which I don't know if we should really talk about. The uh, nope, nope, didn't think so. Nope. But uh, I already know what you're talking about. So essentially, but um, one of the things that Jacob does set. Tallulah up with before he goes is a list of people who are trusted contacts um, for whatever she has to end up doing in the future. And um, one of them is uh, for anybody who hasn't read the first book, a lot of it took place in Europe. And so he's got um, like these kind of military security people that he uses as contacts. And uh, so she, she, she reaches out to these people. So there's a lot of people that you see that had some sort of part in the last book a little bit, but um, really just played bits. But it was it was nice to get that kind of tag on to something you'd already seen before. Um, Marin was this guy who's like a scholar. No, I guess I can't really talk about that, can I? There's so much we can't talk yeah. about. And it didn't seem that way when I was reading the book, but now that I'm trying to think of what the next logical step is, yeah. I keep stumbling into, nope, can't talk about that. Don't want to talk about that. Uh, so Marin is a character that we really can't talk about, but it was it was an interesting scene. Um, one more character I'm going to mention again briefly to keep it um, spoiler free, but I always kind of find it interesting when an author feels that need to go after the first vampire, like Glenn Duncan did in this one. Mm-hmm. Remshi. Remshi. So Remshi is the first vampire, um, allegedly, and um, his coming third, 10th, 400th coming or whatever um, is supposed to signify something that, that could possibly happen. And that's that all ties into to the story as we've been talking about it already. But um, I, I just don't know. I mean, it, it seems like like every author who writes about vampires eventually has to get to that first vampire and then maybe even have like an origin story for it. I don't know if that's really necessary. Well, I mean, the, one of the most attractive things about vampires and you should know this, you're Romanian, um, is that they live, they're, they're immortal. And so like the whole, like the attractive thing is that this, you know, physical stasis where you, you know, you're, are this, you've reached this kind of physical age and then you just stay that age forever. And so what's, what's more of an example of that than someone who's lived the longest. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a logical step to go in, but yeah, it is definitely a card that gets played very, very often. Yeah, and, and I don't necessarily know. And I mean, you, you can address the same issue with saying, hey, this is a really old vampire, but not going back and, and trying to tag them as the first. I'm just in my head, I'm kind of replaying you know, some of the, the vampire fiction I've read, and got, nearly all of them go to a first vampire at some point, which I just, I don't know. It just occurred to me while we were talking about characters in the book that it's kind of odd that that happens. Mm-hmm. But um, so the driving force for these vampires and I don't think this is going to spoil anything. I mean, really just kind of their goal. We find out pretty early on that, um, this Remshi character who's supposed to be the first vampire, um, will kind of be at rest for certain amount of certain amounts of time, but then like is, is prophesized to rise up and, um, I think bestow the ability to walk in daylight is one is like, that's the big draw, you know? And so they're trying to, the vampires, this group of, they mentioned in the synopsis, uh, religious, blood-drinking religious fanatics, which is just a really kind of lame way of saying vampire 
religious nuts. Disciples are, as they're referred to, I think. Yeah, well, are they? But anyway, uh, whatever they're called in this synopsis, essentially they're, yeah, it's it's this group of vampires who's trying to bring Remshi back and the thing, and so they, yeah, they do some stuff to try and make that happen. And, and you know what's stupid about this? Everybody knows that fairy blood makes vampires walk in the daylight. That's true. Russell Edgington. All right, have you been watching this season of True Blood? Uh, I have. I'm like half an episode behind. So did you see the one where he, all right, so he's been kind of in line with the authority, but then he kind mm-hmm. of, but he kind of, he bails on them. Yes. You saw, was that not like the best part of like the last three seasons when he's standing on that table screaming? Yes. Yes. Edgington is very, very good for that show. I just want, I want to write in and be like Alan Ball. Alan Ball is the series creator. Just give me like three solid episodes of nothing but Russell Edgington, like tearing people's spines out and lecturing people. I mean, he's like, he's like a vampire Al Pacino. Like he can just deliver that <laughs> shit. He was born to monologue. They don't do enough of it. Yeah. He's also very good at kidnapping baby werewolves. <laughs> he is. Hey, what do you know? This, what a, what a tie in. Oh my God. Yep. <laughs> so you're, you're operating on an entirely different level for me right now. I, um, I think that we pretty much can't say anything else about specific about story. Can I, can I list my one gripe? Yeah. I, I am fully deducting a half star from, from this, um, from this book, some kind of, uh, foreshadowing here. The werewolves eat people, right? Yes. And then they have like some intimate knowledge of the people they ate. Yeah. I see no point, <laughs> no logic, no anything in that. that. That's probably my biggest gripe about, about that. I have another gripe that I can't share on the air because it's very spoilery. So we'll talk about it off the air. My biggest gripe, what, is, what was the point of Can you explain to me what the point of that is? I'll tell you what my thought is. Sure. All right, so the thing about being a werewolf is that you're essentially once every whatever lunar cycle you turn into a monster that just viciously murders and eats people. And it's purely an animal thing. And, and, and there's no good or bad behind it. It's just like the animal instinct is like Mm -hmm. to kill and eat someone, which is fine, but it's not terribly interesting. So I think that adding the part where, where something in these people stays with them, kind of gives you a contrast to the two different states of being like it'd be one thing if you could just eat someone and forget about it but but the fact that parts part of them like the memory of them or whatever remains inside them makes them have to think about what they did when they're not a werewolf and so i think it makes it so that that the werewolf the person who becomes the werewolf is much more uh uh grounded in the reality of what they're doing is that's how I see it. Okay. Does that make okay. sense? Um, I understand where you're coming from. I, I'm going back to my original statement of, I didn't care for it. I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I mean, the werewolf themselves, they have memory of killing and eating people. So if it's going to affect their, their, their psyche in any way, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know, but I have another question for you. Um, and this is, I'm going to pull on your memory a little bit. Was there ever any mention of bad werewolves in the, in the first book? I don't think necessarily bad. I think that, um, 
I, the only thing I remember was that the behavior was different when they got together in groups as opposed to being alone. Mm-hmm. That's the only uh, thing I can think of. I was just asking because the vampires seem to be portrayed pretty universally as bad. Yeah. And as a supernatural being, I mean, I know we've only really seen Tallulah and Jake, but I know that there were mentions of others and stuff prior to Jake thinking he was the last one. I just couldn't remember if Jake was just like a good werewolf and there are bad ones or if just all the wolves are kind of painted as as, as pretty decent where all the vampires are just horribly evil. Well, that was my question. That's nothing to do really with the book versus just how Glenn Duncan has given me the impression he feels about werewolves. That's an interesting point, too, because you wouldn't think that, I mean, if anything, because of what they are, you would think that the wolves would be, I mean, either equal to the vampires or more evil, just because, I don't know. I, I Yeah, it, it's weird. Some that of they, that may have to do with them retaining their humanity 29 days a month, but. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It was just, that was just a curiosity point of discussion, I guess. Going back a little bit to the to the retaining the the part of the people that you eat thing, mm-hmm. um, that was really one of the things that it was themed throughout. And I don't think this is spoiling anything, but there was one person in particular that um, I think was a victim at some point that really grounded her thoughts about her being a mother and her as a as a werewolf. Tulula, I'm talking about. Um, that she kept going back to that. I think it really stuck with her. Like she, she felt bad about this one person. And, um, I think it really kind of molded her choices throughout the book. Do you know who I'm talking about? I do. I do. I do. Yeah. And so things like that, I think were really crucial to the way that the story played out. I mean, I understand it could have happened without it, but, um, it really added another level of kind of meaning to things. All right. Anything else uh, you want to talk about about the story itself um, or themes in the story? I guess my the thought that's been going through my head as we're talking about this is that um, it's it's so difficult, especially when we're not spoiling the story, to just express how deep um, and, and thoughtful the book is about the subjects that it talks about, like I mean, there's so much depth to what she's going through, kind of Tallulah's going through in every aspect of her life, um, being a parent, uh, having a, a essentially the loss of a kid, mourning the loss of a lover, considering the idea of, like, will I love again? Will I have this companionship again? And reconciling all of that against the fact that you are just a murderer. And beyond the fact that you're a murderer, you enjoy it. And I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because it's a female character, um, and he was playing on the idea that you know a f- maybe women just have the ability because of the things that they go through and endure to be more honest with themselves. But I mean, she just straight up says, you know, like I love the kill. I love killing people. Like you know, like you know, she really enjoys it and she knows it. She she acknowledges the darker parts of her being. And that's what makes this story so goddamn good is that this person is just straight up honest about everything. And they just analyze the good and bad parts of like everything that's going on. I thought that was by far the strongest part of the book. And it's really tough to explain by just going through individual parts of the book because it's such a strong theme throughout the whole thing. 
Um, Duncan again mentioned something that he mentioned in the last werewolf, which is quoted from from Jake, um, you know, from his journals and stuff about um, in order to accept something, you have to name it. Yeah. And, and I think that Tallulah does quite a bit of that in this book. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. There's there's one more thing I want to say about being a werewolf and the compulsions and stuff that plays into this. You know, I think at least plays into from what I'm thinking into what you just said. Um, nearing the 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 full moon cycle, the the werewolf's libido just goes right through the roof. So Tallulah winds up, you know, and, and mostly not so much in the story, but talking about you know how she's slept with various guys and and you know the things she's done to to satisfy the this this crazy sex drive that that goes through her. Well, after she loses her child, that drive is still there, and she has like this self hatred for having to kind of satisfy this internal need, and, and and criticizes herself quite frequently about you know, my son is out there, and all I can think about is getting laid. Yeah. And I I think that's kind of plays into what you were saying, and one of the things I thought made this book so good is her being so honest about you know, her feelings for her child and the things she does and, you know, just fantastic, fantastic analysis of a person, like an in-depth kind of analysis. And it's hard to get that type of, I mean, and again, that's one of the things that stand out to me the most is that it's hard to, in a fictional story, especially one with such fantastic elements, get that sort of like um, introspective, like honesty to come across without sounding either you know pretentious or or just in you know, like not genuine he i mean he did it I, I, it's just so impressive that he made it work so well agreed writing this guy can write and um i'll be honest i think that a lot of writers should read to rising just just for a good feel of what you can actually do with words and, and and inner dialogue i mean that's that's how strongly i feel about his writing in this book yeah, and and the more that I read, the more that I feel that there are, I mean, there's like skill levels <laughs> that you mm -hmm. see in in published writers, and there, I mean, some people just operate on an entirely different plane than others, and like this person, um, Livius m might might back me up on this. Mm -hmm. When I when I read Glenn Duncan, I think of authors like Arturo Perez Reverte, who just kills it when it comes to telling a story and i was thinking about this the other night there are writers authors writers what i'm going to say and they're they're storytellers mm -hmm. and there's a very big distinction there um you can write it i mean chuck polinick writes awesome books i think of him as like a writer i think of this guy as 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 glenn duncan as a storyteller because what he does is he just creates just an entirely different reality and you just lose yourself in it I'm going to back you up on that. And the part that I want to add is I actually see him as both. Yeah. I mean, there are times where I reread a passage two or three times because of just how well, just how well structured it was or, or exactly the message that he tried to convey in the beautiful way that he did it while still managing to tell a story. Yeah. So I oh. definitely put him in like in a very strong storyteller role. Um, I don't know if you agree with me about Arturo Perez Reverte, but that dude just kills it when it comes to storytelling. I know. I agree. I agree. And he is, he is, uh, he does it on a much more realistic, even I guess, yeah. historical, historical level. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. That, that he builds just these great characters with depth and, and emotion and, and, you know, and there's a great story for you to follow and get involved with. Yes, absolutely. 
There's also an author that I've only read one of his books, um, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, who just had another book that I just really wish that we could read. Uh, he had a book come out recently, but he wrote Shadow of the Wind, which I read earlier this year, and he's exactly in the same category. He just like it's like he's got a magic wand or something. I mean, the I can't. I mean, can't imagine how long it would take to write a story as complex as as this guy did. Um, but yeah, just just epic storytelling. Have we uh, have we said enough great things about Glenn Duncan yet, or do um, we need to go on? Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're really good to segue into quotes right now. Okay. I'm also going to borrow quotes um, this evening from Ryan. Right. Was before we go, yes. <laughs> before we go any further, we have to get this out of the way. Why Livius is so ill prepared for this episode? Because yep. it, it can't wait any longer. Um, do you want to tell them, or should I? Um, I, I I can tell them. Um, I uh, woke up this morning and went to move a new book onto my Kindle and realized that I'd probably left my Kindle in the car. At any rate, so um, come to retrace my steps and decide that my Kindle was stolen out of my car. Some some jerk stole Livius's Kindle. All right, so here's the thing. We read, I'd say, 95% of the books that we do for this podcast on electronic devices, and someone yes. steals it. I mean, I mean, they're basically like taking away your ability to to do the podcast Just the, the, the do you want to read him the text i sent you yeah <laughs> this is livius's text to me from earlier today around uh noon on the day we're recording which is august 26th i may have to quit the podcast my kindle was stolen there you go so along with that were all my notes you know i make notes in the kindle about things all the time. They're just short and I don't type out like essays or whatever, but I have a whole bunch of stuff highlighted and um, yeah. And it's gone. And you know, you know what the rough thing about this is, right? N- nobody stole it is actually a crack the Kindle open and read any of the stuff that's in there that, that went straight to a pawn shop or being sold yeah. for heroin or yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like my first thought was, well, at least they've got a lot of good books on that Kindle. Yeah. Um, um my iPod also, by the way, iPod Classic also gone. Nowhere near as upset about that as I am about my Kindle. Well, the, at least they got a lot of Hall of Notes to listen to. <laughs> yep, Rick Springfield and Hall of Notes, the collections. So my follow-up text was, you can borrow mine. Because, you know, solidarity. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, also, I have zero quotes from a very quotable fucking book. And that yeah. just made my heart heavy. Yeah. So luckily, Rob had 20-something quotes, and he's sharing with me. <laughs> so I have something to say during this portion of the episode. Did, so, um, hmm? in light of the news that your Kindle was stolen, um, I, I put my quotes into the document that we share. Um, did, did, any of the, did any of my quotes match any of the ones that you'd chosen? No, not one. That's insane. I know. And normally, and with this many, because I honestly, I probably had 14, 16. I mean, I had a lot um, that you would think that, uh, that, that we'd have some, but looking at these, none of them look familiar. I mean, I, I recognize them from the book, but, right. um, but no, I don't think any of these are mine. <laughs> Do you want to kick it off? Or you want me to get started so you can kind of get comfortable? Um, yeah, go ahead and go ahead and kick it off and I'll just pick one from down the list here. I'm going to start off with a very, very graphic one. Just so that we can contrast it with some of like the really uh, nice, um, more thoughtful ones. But I just want to, you know, you got to hit the ground running here. So here's my first one um, talking about childbirth. Here's a setup. Um, 
this is Tallulah reflecting on a conversation she had had with someone else whose wife had had a baby. I want to tell, and this is from the perspective of, of the person. I want to tell you it was beautiful, he said, but basically it looked like someone had taken a 12 gauge to her pussy. Oh, oh Rob always goes for the classy ones. That's the type of thing that you can't not say if it's in a book somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I hear you. Um, I'm going to use this one just because um, we didn't. I, I'm, I listened to to our last werewolf episode and, and this didn't come up then. And this is a, a made up word from that book. Um, it's one word. It's fuck, kill, eat. And this was the terminology that, that Jake and Tallulah used for when they would have these werewolf I almost call them orgy, like a like just this exactly what it is. Fuck, kill, eat, where they would have sex, like a kill ritual. someone, yeah, and 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 eat them together. So it was like this kind of um, I I don't even know how to how to word this right, but this sexual experience that involved eating people too. So, um, uh, so this is the quote: "Fuck, kill, eat. I don't just like it. I confess to Jake. I don't just like it. I love it." Here, all right. Here's the contrast to the to twelve gauge quote that I just did, um, and this is really close to the beginning of the book. Um, her just kind of thinking about the lives and the kind of and the circumstances that her and Jacob had been thrown into. A century and a half of loneliness, coded by sixty days and nights of love. Not much of an equation. Reversed, it looked even worse. 60 days and nights of love, followed by hundreds of years of loneliness. I started to cry reading that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very, very terrific. A little bit, we talked a lot, I guess, about her inner dialogue, her inner monologue about her, her being a, a mother. Um, so this is her imagining uh, just, you know, her future with the kids. Look, kids, the werewolf mommy, just like a human mommy, except she doesn't love her babies and she kills people and eats them. <laughs> I like that one a lot. I'm going to two, do two back-to-back because one's a nasty one and I want to kind of like re- redeem myself. Talking about the actual giving birth part uh, yeah, towards the beginning of the story. The placentas slid to the floor. They looked like a pair of revolting purses. So <laughs> there's that. Now, um, talking about just like uh, important uh, things that happen in your in someone's life. Uh, a little bit of a, a realistic reflection on that. When something happened that was everything to you, you realized that it was nothing to everything else. Some heavy stuff right there. Yeah. This one, uh, I actually had, had uh, reneged on what I said earlier. We did have one in common. I just didn't see it. Um, Tallulah's in a situation where she's moving very quickly. Something crazy has just happened. And uh, this is the quote. People's faces went by, not as the convention has it, in a blur, but in vivid snapshots. That's the type of thing I love, and that's one of my favorite quotes, because you fall into this kind of trap where it's really easy to just write the things that you would be expected to write. But writing something that's the almost exact opposite of what people typically describe things as makes it such a stronger moment to me. And and those are the types of thoughts that you have in real life. It's like, this is nothing like they write about. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was great. Um, all right. So um, this one for style more than anything is the reason that I really like this quote. And I have to not use the name of the character. So uh, this character, it, um, this is just kind of more of a gruesome kind of battle 
kind of scene in the book. Um, so-and-so, meanwhile, was on all fours next to me, soisant nooft over her victim. And I love that because, you know, obviously that's 69. But um, it was very nice. I thought that was cool. It's very nice French, pronun- French pronunciation there. Two years of French in high school, buddy. Oh, look at that. I'm glad you get to use that frequently on this podcast. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to just wrap it up with one more that, uh, uh, I mean, I didn't highlight all of like these, these little thoughtful moments in the book because it would have been dozens and dozens, but, uh, as much as, all right, no, I'm going to do two. I'm going to do one that's really gruesome again. And then I'm going to round it off with a really thoughtful one because the gruesome is just so damn gruesome and it's so good. Um, so this is someone, uh, dying a very gru- gruesome death. Uh, now the shoulder ended in ragged flesh around the yawning joint, severed veins pumping out blood as if in a hurry to be rid of it, as if they'd been dying to do it for years. See, that's what I'm talking about. This guy can just write, like just can really write lines completely devoid of the story. He gave personality to veins. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. He's, he's a, <laughs> the guy's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, just to end it off with more of a thoughtful note, uh, you want to give love a chance, find someone you can't communicate with. I like that one. I've lived enough to know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) That was all part of a bigger paragraph too. I think that was really well written if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So as you can tell by the fact that we just went on for like 15 minutes, just doing quotes, such a quotable book, such a well-written endlessly fascinating book. There's not a page that you can't read that doesn't have something that is, is beyond, you know, normal writing that like sticks out to you, that jumps out to you. Ready to start wrap ups. Yeah. Why don't you kick it off? I'm going to kick it off right here. You know, I, I can't say enough. Um, I know that Rob was, was really enthralled with the, the storytelling, which I thought was fantastic, but even more so, I just, I love his writing and his depth of character, specifically with Tallulah, but even the bits he touched on with, with other characters and what their, what their motivations were or um, what their handicaps were and why they had them throughout the course of the book. And I was just totally, totally sucked in. Um, with books, much like movies, it's really hard to find a sequel that, that, you know, you like better than the original, or at least I, I kind of feel that that's the case. Um, this was one of those books. I liked it better than the last werewolf. Um, I'm deducting, I'm deducting some points cause this, this was a five star book for me. Um, until I, like I said, the, the whole seeing people's memories when you eat them rub me the wrong way and then there's another little plot hole that i don't like that rob will probably really logically saw up for me after we're, we're done doing this uh recording this episode <laughs> um but after deducting points for that at four and a half stars just a fantastic book and and it was really it's really hard for me not to just go full bore and get and give it five stars but there were a couple flaws in my opinion um again maybe it's you know, maybe Rob's right and I'm just not looking at it the right way. And that's exactly what he's trying to convey in that. But then again, I guess if I'm not getting it as the reader, then in some small way, he's he's failed, at least with me. So and I hate to say that, because like I said, this is this is goddamn near a perfect book. So four and a half stars. I'm not going to try and wander off topic too much. Uh, the things I liked about the book were just the terrific storytelling storytelling. I can't emphasize enough. Um, the writing was great, uh, endlessly quotable, fascinating, 
and Tallulah is just such a strong character. So, like, in the first book, Tallulah, you know, uh, is a character, but not, I mean, is being developed. In this book, Tallulah just owns the shit. Tallulah is awesome in this book and a very, very strong character. I love the fact that the, that she's so realistically introspective uh, about what's going on in her life and so, like, harshly truthful with herself about the good and bad things that are going on, like I said earlier. Um, and just overall, it's a great story. I, I, I am racking my brain right now trying to find a flaw that I see in, in the book, and it's just start to finish just so strong. Um, even, I mean, things that we there's things that we can't talk about that I thought were really... I mean, on top of doing a very solid story and having really solid, well-developed characters, there's these little kind of just cool bits that he throws in there that he didn't need to do, but they're nice little flares that just made the book even better. So in my mind, I'm thinking about five-star books that we've talked about in the past as far as novels go, which I think is Strangers in the Proportion and uh, Night Circus, maybe. Mm -hmm. Night Circus wasn't even five stars. No? Collectively, it was Warmed and Bound... Um, L.A. and a Thousand Words. And well, novels, so I'm just talking about novels. Oh, that's that's all we've got, just the one. What did, what did we do for Night Circus? I think that wound up at like four and a half. Wow. All right, well, yeah, I'm thinking about those really high, I guess high high scoring ones like Strangeness and Night Circus. And, I mean, it stands up to either of them. I'm, 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 I'm doing five stars. I got, I got to go five on this one. It's just all around. I loved it. Woohoo. That Glenn Duncan, this is not an easy task that you pulled off here, Mr. Duncan. That's a five star from Mr. Olson. It's a slam Duncan. Wow. Yeah, it's just terrific. Like, I, I know I'm going to be reading everything Glenn Duncan does. Yeah. So. Yeah. Highly recommended. And as Livia's brought up, I want to bring, I want to come back to this. Definitely a book that could stand on its own um, if you're not interested in. In, in investing the time to read one book just to get to this one. I don't see why you couldn't read this one without having read the first one. Agreed. As Better far than as, the first one, right? Yeah. And, and, and here's my question to you. As far as audiences, is there someone you, you would not recommend read it, Livius? No, there isn't. I mean, people who get grossed out pretty easily, I guess. Yeah, really, if you're, if you're squeamish yeah. more than the average person, I mean, there's some scenes that could disturb you, but otherwise, again, it's 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 got a far reach, I think. Yeah, it's it's gritty enough for like the the real crimey noir people. Yeah, like Tallulah is is hardcore enough to to appeal to somebody who likes like the femme fatale kind of character. Um, y- you know, yeah. and it's definitely not. I mean, it's not a family style book. It's it's definitely very gritty and dark. It's horror enough for people. It's got an action adventure feel to it. It's got that kind of fantasy feel with like the vampires and the werewolves. It's got pretty wide appeal. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Do we have anything besides werewolves to talk about tonight, Livius? We have all kinds of stuff to talk about. Y'all ready for this? All right. So <laughs> we already talked about Livius getting just fucking straight up robbed. Did you file a police report? I did not. Just kind of, I, I don't really see the point. All right. So, and honestly, I'm not exactly sure where it happened either. It's kind of like stuff's missing from my car, but I don't know exactly where it happened or when it happened because there was no damage to my car. I apparently left my door unlocked. Tisk tisk. <sighs> yeah, but here, can we talk about something good that happened to me, though? Yeah, let's talk about something yeah. great that happened to you. So, um, some of you may have heard us talk about Julian Grant, 
who was the um, writer, director, producer, <laughs> um, key grip for Flossed, Fuck Load of Scotch Tape, uh, the Judd Ayers adaptation. Um, he was looking for someone to do voiceover for a short um, adult-themed um, cartoon. So that was released over the weekend. And that animation, I guess is the right word, not cartoon, but animation is called The End of Christopher's Gang. And it is based on a short story that came from Out of the Gutter magazine um, by Matthew Lewis. And I got to do the, the narrative voiceover on that. So there's a little cartoon character walking around using my voice. It's pretty goddamn cool. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Yes. How much voiceover work have you done before this? Um, zero. This is your breakthrough voiceover uh, uh, situation, right? Yes, and I was hoping you wouldn't figure that out because now you're probably starting to already plan for when I leave to just do voiceover work full time. Because <laughs> that's coming now, you know that. <sighs> right? Oh man! If I lose you to voiceover work, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> you, no, you didn't lose. Yeah, it's convenient that you lost your Kindle, and I'm doing air quotes right now. <laughs> at the same time that you started getting this awesome voiceover work. God damn it. I thought I had this all planned out. I mean, let's face it. I do voice over here. I pretend I'm a book reviewer. <laughs> so I've done at least 102 episodes of voiceover work prior to uh, prior to this this release. So anyway, world premiere, the end of Christopher's gang. It's uh, it's very short. It's under three minutes. Give it a watch. I think it's a great, gritty little story for three minutes. And hey, it's like watching this show. Only you get to see a little cartoon guy walking around doing my voice. Um, I think that's worthy of being on the front page of Booked. What do you think? Um, I think that, uh, yes, I would have to agree. If only, if only I had a way to get in touch with the guy who does the front page of the, of the, of the, our webpage. We'll see what we can do about it. We'll see if we can pull some strings. So a big thank you to Julian Grant, who, uh, who put this together. And a big thank you to Matthew Lewis, who I don't know, but uh, he's the catalyst. He's the one who wrote the story that Julian loved and, uh, and needed someone to thug out a voiceover. So... Thank you, Matthew, and thank you, Julian, very, very much. Big thank you, and congratulations to those guys, and to Livius, who is now essentially a full-time voiceover person after this, I'm assuming, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is all I'm ever going to do. Cool. Well, I, I don't worry, listeners. Don't be like, I don't want you guys to get down and feel like, oh, poor Rob. He's being left behind. Livius has all this cool side work he's doing and Rob's just sitting here editing all the audio and updating the website for the podcast. <laughs> um, I've got stuff going on too. Uh, so over at Manarchy Magazine, I just had a book review post for the latest Jedediah Ayers collection of short stories called Buckload of Shorts. Now, anybody who's listened to us, uh, Livius has mentioned Julian Grant, Julian did the movie fuckload of scotch tape, which was adapted from a couple of short stories that are in this collection of short stories, manarchy we've talked about in the past, you know, we've done some stuff with them over there and we're working for them in various capacities. Um, but yeah, I had this book review drop and you could just kind of look forward to us doing little things here and there for manarchy in the future. But Jed's book, fuckload of shorts, great collection of stories he does the mahogany and monogamy and fuck a load of scotch tape which um you know inspired that film but beyond that there's just these really really well written terribly fucked up stories is really the only way i can 
<laughs> I can describe it. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about what that's like, you can read my book review uh, and you can get, I think the, the, the collection's like three to five bucks, somewhere in there. You can get it on Amazon. It's published by Snubnose Press and um, it's all linked up and everything over at Manarchy. So head over to Manarchy, read my review, and then you can just go straight from the article to uh, to, to Amazon and, and pick up a copy of it because it's really interesting reading, not for the light of hearts. I mean, if you have a pacemaker, you probably shouldn't, you know, like just be careful if you have health issues before you read something like this, because it's definitely down and dirty. I, I had a couple of thoughts I'd like to share first. First is a question for you um, since you reviewed this, but every time I hear about the movie fuckload of scotch tape, obviously the short fuckload of scotch tape comes up and mahogany and monogamy. Which of those do you think is the better, the better title? Because I go back and forth. I like mahogany and monogamy. Yeah. See, and like I said, sometimes I think that, and they're just both such great titles. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm not. I couldn't list off. I'd have to go back and, and look through. Well, never mind. Somebody. Um. My second. This goes into my second thought is that, hey, whoever stole my Kindle, that's in there. At least read it because it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. It'd be funny if whoever stole your Kindle also is a listener of the show. Yeah. So that might have some value amongst listeners of the show. That'd probably be worth like 40 bucks. Um, my other thought was too, is yeah, Rob just talked up his review, but really it's a bunch of fighting words in there. And I'm waiting to see what happens between Jed Ayers and, and Rob Olson the next time they're in the same room. Cause I think there was some name calling in there. I, I essentially called him a gentle giant. I think <laughs> you called him a big teddy bear. And I'm just waiting for him to tear your heart out now. <laughs> He's well, if he wasn't a big teddy bear, I'd be afraid of him doing that. But he does have some very thuggish friends. So maybe I should have chosen my words a little bit more carefully. It's a good review. Very well written. Yeah. Thank you. I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah of course it was. Of course it was. Those words came out of me. Your author bio is a little long, but whatever. Ouch, man. Ouch. So um, what else do we have? We have we have a couple more things. Um, it's been a little while, a couple episodes, but um, good old Skip Papersley was nice enough to send us a, a the thir- I think it's the thirteenth episode of Booked News. So you want to go into that? Absolutely. All right, here it is, Skip Papersley with Booked News. This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. This week in Book News, Harvard Medical School scientist George Church and Ed Regis created the first book to be written in DNA. According to these two cuckoo birds, coding the book Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves in DNA, has really been a 40-plus year-long research project. Allegedly, DNA is a very efficient place to store data. One gram can hold 455 billion gigabytes of data. Holy shit. In a bit of sad news, beloved author Neil Gaiman announced that his next novel will be his last. In an interview, he said, quote, Don't worry, it will recap, sequel, and be the ending to American Gods, Neverwhere, Sandman, Lucifer, Coraline, The Graveyard Book, Mirror Mask, and Beowulf. At the time of this news piece, the book is tentatively titled, Hopefully This Will Make You Leave Me Alone. Now the bestsellers in fiction recap. Odd Apocalypse by Dean Koontz is better dead than red, and it's number five. R.A. Salvatore serves up some drizzt in Karen's Claw at number four. Where We Belong by Emily Griffin belongs at number three, three weeks in a row. Julie Garwood's book, Sweet Talk, flirts with number one, but comes in at number two. 
Finally, Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn is number one again. Somewhere, someone just said, you go, girl. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley, signing off. And that was Skip Papersley with um, Book News. I've got to tell you, I have to look into the, um, what he said about Neil Gaiman there, because that's kind of concerning. That would be pretty big stuff. I um I, I liked a lot of Gaiman's early stuff, and I don't mean the Sandman stuff. I kind of didn't get the Sandman comics, but Neverwhere, man, I love Neverwhere. My confession for the day is I've never read any Neil Gaiman. <sighs> All right, moving right along. And I've stolen one Kindle. <laughs> Damn it! I could have swore I heard Hollow Notes playing in the background <laughs> over there. It's like, what is that? And you're like, that's ah, nothing. It's a my, it's a ringtone. So you got a Facebook message. See, I told Livius that he could borrow my Kindle, and we have the exact same Kindle. So I'm just going <laughs> to give him his back, and he'll never know. And that's the whole thing. The whole plot was just for me to feel bad that I'm borrowing his Kindle, <laughs> so he can bring it up on the show all the time. That's my Kindle, Livius. And you just, you'll just wouldn't catch on to the fact that at the top it says Livius Nedden's Kindle. Nice. Yeah, I deregistered it because you know what I thought? Yeah. It occurred to me that someone could just go on and buy stuff, and I'm probably logged into like regular Amazon on there too. Yeah. I just imagine like starting to get some emails that people are buying like laptops and stuff off my Kindle. Fifty Shades Deeper. Oh, that's already on there. Mm. All right. The whole, the whole collection. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so here's our next bit of uh, kind of newsworthy uh, um, talk here. Uh, came across this earlier today in the UK. Um, this imprint, Angry Robot, um, partnered up with an independent bookstore called Mostly Books. And what they're doing is they're bundling the electronic edition of, of any of the Angry Robot novels with a print copy. So kind of like if you walked into a Barnes and Noble here and went up and picked up Fifty Shades of Grey, when you walked up to the counter, they would ask for your email address and then they would send you a DRM free copy of Fifty Shades of Grey for you to, to be able to read on your electronic device. This is something that came up with, Rob, did you say it was Caleb? Yeah, Caleb was talking about that before with us. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting concept because um, there are a lot of people who collect books and uh, you know that way you'd have the freedom to either read the paper book or read the digital copy, never open your paper book, hold on to that bad boy to get it signed. So Angry Robot um, did this. Here's the interesting part. Over a period of two weeks in this bookstore, the sales of Angry Robot novels tripled. So I've been thinking about this a little bit, and you want to know what I think is, is the cause of this being as successful as it is? Tell me. Now, Caleb, when he was talking to us about it, said the basic, you know, people should just buy books and have the digital copies bundled with them. And I think we were talking, I, did we talk to Alan Guthrie about this? I know we talked to someone I else about so. it. And I they talked about like the logistical difficulties. Mm -hmm. So the real success I think is, is partnering up with a specific store so that you can kind of coordinate um, your efforts. So you have someone who's, you know, you're basically your feet on the ground, people working in partnership with the people who are making the books. So I think that's what made it such a successful effort is having both areas of, of bookmaking and selling covered. Mm -hmm. um, the other possibility in this whole thing is that the, the week before they started, they sold one copy. <laughs> They're like, Hey, three. All right. 
so I don't know what what data they've offered up. The article I read um, on techdirt.com did not give up a lot of information on, on actual sales. But um, it's a really interesting concept, and this kind of plays into something we talked about on our last interlude episode, which was, you know, how to save um, the indie bookstore. This yeah. indie bookstore just raised their sales with, uh, with at least this imprint, so... I like it a lot. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's happening in other mediums like we've talked about in the past, and it's just it makes sense to go to like a free digital copy type of thing, um, especially when you get interesting. I mean, the idea of a, a print book is becoming less and less necessary, and so the books that keep you interested are the ones that are interesting or weird or unique. So um, Christopher Moore's Sacre Blue is a, is a good example because – believe it's just the first edition of the book had all the words in the entire book were this really cool shade of blue and then after that first edition was done they're just going to go to the regular black ink um so it's going to be things like that more novelty approaches to books that are going to be what brings people in but because it's such a unique piece you're going to want to preserve it so having the digital copy makes so much sense yeah i think your bookshelf can become more of a an artistic statement than a place to keep books. Yeah. Like a gallery. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So right now every book you own is sitting on your bookshelf, you know, theoretically where that would be books. You, you know, just picked and chose to be on there because of how you feel about them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the, I mean, that's the, that's the trend. I, as a consumer, am going in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It would be nice if, um, publishing companies kind of caught up with that idea and uh again you know we mentioned this before it wouldn't be hard you could have like a qr code or something you know if the publisher themselves did it on the inside of the book or or some you know some way you could you know go get a digital download i mean the digital book already exists so it's there's no extra cost there it's just making that available to the consumer yeah yeah and not being so worried about like because I think that people see the logistical issue of if you put a code in a book, people can just write down the code and, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, not being so worried about the little bit of people breaking the rules that's going to happen versus the lot of bit of people that are going to just buy the book because they're honest people who love to read. Yeah. So, so my congratulations to... Uh... To, to both of those angry books, which uh, I should mention is an imprint of angry robot. Did I say angry birds? <laughs> I wish you had. You said angry books. God damn it. <laughs> angry books. Dude, there you go. When, when we have our own publishing company, <laughs> angry books, that's going to be our name. Um, so, Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I know Rob's not taking any of this out. Uh, Osprey Publishing Imprint, Angry Robot, and uh, Mostly Books is the the independent bookstore. So congratulations to you guys for being innovative and uh, and uh, tripling your sales. So good job. Well played, guys. Well played. They might have they had keychains, too. I'm not sure. Probably some keychains. If they learned anything from the Huffington Post. That's right. Angry Bird keychains with every purchase. <laughs> well, oh, um, can I... This is not me one-upping you. This is more me just trying to, to let you know that you're not alone in the world. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you that I, too, am a victim? No. No. Of what, pray tell? So the other day, I um, I was out hanging out with Skip Papersley. 
And uh, that that does sound like you were victimized. He did not victimize me. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Go on. Um, but he drove. So we left my car at my house, and he drove. And uh, I come home, and there's like the neighbors are standing out in the in the driveway and everything. And it turns out that uh, so I live in a townhouse and. There's obviously the driveways, but there's also those like handful of parking spots that you can park in. And I was parked in the ones that they're not the ones you pull into, but that you kind of like parallel park into. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone had a neighbor, someone who lives like two houses down from me, had this big dumb Astro van kind of van, had backed into my car and um, put a little scratch on my front fender and drove off without telling anybody or, or you know, anything. So, uh, the neighbors were all up in arms. They're like, we saw him. We'll tell the police. We're your witnesses. So I, too, am a victim. Can I, can I tell you the thought I just had? Is it possible that a rival podcast is, is the cause for, for our victimization? Oh, my God. I never thought of that. They could have, they could have put somebody up to hitting your car thinking you were in it, you know, like, like, one of, like in a movie you know, where the car explodes, but you're not the one that got into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stole my Kindle, so I can't review books for the show. <laughs> Are we talking another book review podcast? Or are we talking like just a, a jealous podcast? Well, okay, let, let, let's be really honest. A, a, a regular non-book review podcast really probably doesn't care about book review podcasts. I don't think we're a significant threat to their audience. But another book review podcast, on the other hand, that's a different story. Yeah, because really, if we get knocked off of the podcasting world, there's a vacuum of power. Someone's got to fill that vacuum. This is true. Now, I don't think it's NPR. I think that they're okay with where we're at. <laughs> if anybody's got any theories about which nefarious book podcast is trying to knock us off, I'd like to hear it. Yep. Or if it's a crazy, bitter author that's been posting tirades on Facebook, because there's a few of those too. Manifestos even. Manifestos, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Facebook is where you go to publicly self-destruct. Apparently. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, it's been a it's been a long week, buddy. I gotta who, tell you. Who knew that writers were high maintenance and dramatic <laughs> and irrational. Did I mention irrational because irrational should be. Yeah. Well, let's just let's let's go ahead and say now that we don't mean all writers, just most of them. Okay. All right. Before we go, let's throw one more thing out there. I hear FCJR might be coming to a close soon. Yeah, we um, it, it, there's not a lot left in the uh, the reserves, mm-hmm. so uh, FCJR the reviews are kind of uh, drying up a little bit, and we might do some sort of final thoughts or see if we can get Caleb on the record about about what he thinks. <laughs> I don't know. The results of his investigation. (laughs) (laughs) Here are the results of my investigation, and it's just our YouTube page. (laughs) You know, I listened to that episode this morning. I laughed out loud. It was every bit as funny as when you first said that. (laughs) Oh, Caleb. Caleb, we love you. FCJR forever. FCJR for life. So we've gone on way too long. Oh, it was his birthday recently. It was Caleb's birthday. And this is the clever thing that I did. I don't. I think I told you this, mm-hmm. but I haven't told our listeners. So um, 
I, I, I put a little happy birthday on, on Caleb's wall. I said, hey, I hope you have a great birthday. Today is totally for Caleb J. Ross. And then uh, for the words for Caleb J. Ross, I put the first letter of each word in parentheses. Uh, let's see. Hold on. F C J. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Yes. It was Caleb's birthday. He turned 16, 17. Um, Caleb stole my Kindle. That son of a bit. Well, yeah, he would be the jealous author who has a reason to knock us off because we're gathering everybody to say such mean things about him. Oh, let's, let's wait for him to self destruct on Facebook. Yeah. Waiting for that manifesto, Caleb. All right. Um, here's the deal. We have no idea what we're doing next episode. None. Zero. Zilch. Are you worried about it? Not particularly. Neither am I. Because I'm going to have to read whatever it is like on my phone. <laughs> yeah, we might. Yeah, well, that would be a perfect excuse to not read a book for next week. But we we probably will. I've got a Kindle laying around. Oblivious has a smartphone. I think he's got. Um, I mean, I and there are up the Sony. There are books. I plugged up the Sony, brought it out from the archives, the Sony reader. It's currently charging. Wow. Or one of my other numerous Android devices. So, but yeah, uh, here's the one thing I can tell you. We'll definitely have a next episode. One Oh yeah. One Oh three. One Oh two. This is one Oh two. One Oh three will happen. I'm going to overcome the adversity that I'm currently facing. All right, so yes, episode 103, definitely happening, overcoming adversity. Um, that wraps it up for yet another book review edition of Booked Podcast. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. So pleased with ourselves for using so many verbs and nouns. But we were all still just dumb, dumb, dumb. There's a dirt, dirt, dead on the ground.